Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today we're talking about Sudan and the ongoing raging civil war. We're talking about why it is and how it is that we got here. We're going to talk about a little bit of history about the country and the people. And with me is Dr. Mohammed Al-Amin Uthman, a physician as his day job, brilliant political analyst. So here we are. Enjoy. It's uh, quite surprising how despite the strong links between Britain and between Sudan on many, many levels um, and for, for generations, uh, whether, whether it be through colonial presence or whether it be through um, students, Sudanese traveling to the UK and gaining their education, such as your father, for instance, and yourself, um, or Brits going to Sudan and learning Arabic and, and various other disciplines. I mean, I, I, I recall that uh, doing my first and master's degrees in the linguistics and translation studies, most of my tutors had gained their Arabic degrees in Sudan. Um, a, a country that is, um, you know, it's, it's uh, a, a vegetation and fruit and wheat and the such in abundance, uh, a culture so rich, uh, diverse, um, and the people so sweet, so amiable. So um, how is it possible that not only in such uh, idyllic Sur surroundings, how could the civil war as brutal as we've seen on our screens happen? But how is it also that we know so little of internal Sudanese political, military, strategic dynamics that virtually everyone seems to have been, you know, absolutely shocked by the prospect that we found uh, find ourselves here today. It's, it's something that's, that's uh, been playing on my mind for, for a while now, for, you know, since this conflict started. But if I was to ask you about how we could um, uh, we could look at this and try to understand um, why it is that the conflict uh, started and why is it proving so brutal, so bloody, so uh, so so tough on the eye as well as on the senses, and obviously extremely tough on the Sudanese people. Where would you where would where would you start with trying to answer that? Well, first of all, I mean, thank you for having me today and for your very kind words, um, which I think you've actually um, summarized in a way very well the complexity, but also shed some light on where some of that complexity arises from. And I would make a claim that part of the issue is that when you speak about say the Sudanese graduates who came for postgraduate training in Britain, or those who went for Arabic language training in Sudan, when you look at it carefully, you are looking at one dimension of Sudan. I, I don't want to use the word class, but one dimension uh, and one particular component of Sudan. And that's a component which was largely created, let's say, or molded by history. The history of uh, the British colonial middle classes, yes, and 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 the educate the very limited education system which was left behind, which covered a small number of people within certain areas of the country. So, therefore, all this, which is now coming as a surprise, this boiling and explosion, could be actually part of um, birthing pains 
uh, very overdue, but they've been bubbling under the surface for, for years, if not for decades. But because largely in the peripheries of the country, not entirely recognized by someone who might have not had the chance to wander outside the center of capital Khartoum. So, and I think that's probably where why people have been, in a way, called by surprise. And this doesn't extend just to yourself. It also extends to people who should have been a lot more informed, such as diplomats or, or representatives of the international community on the ground. But then again, this is the sphere with, within they largely move and operate. And therefore, they've all been caught uh, by surprise, at least from what's uh, what we're seeing. But, it's, but it, it is true that when we're talking about Sudan, we are talking about a country that uh, possesses incredible strategic interest and strategic importance and significance. I spoke about uh, you know the, the, the futile soils and I talk about the human resources and I talked about the cultures emerge, you know, coming together and marrying within the Sudanese uh, community. But, but also the location of Sudan, if you look at the, you know, the, the, the map, not only of Africa, but, but of the, the entire region, in fact, the entire world, it is of incredible importance. And therefore, I'm, I'm, I think I'm safe in assuming that we're talking about a location which, uh, which attracts the attention of various powers of various sorts, political, military, agricultural, financial, and the such. Absolutely. Because where, if you go back in time, say before the breakup of the Soviet Union, Sudan then was the eighth largest country in the world area size. Having said that, at the time, the population was somewhere about 30 million. So very underpopulated or, and largely concentrated along the banks of the Blue, White Nile and the, and, and the Nile uh, and other fertile regions. So it's a vast country. And even after the independence of South Sudan, it went from the first largest country in Africa to the third. That's still a huge um, area, which is probably equal to France and, and Spain and probably even Germany combined. So it's a vast With such area. such a small population. With a population of about 40 million, largely very young, but still very diverse. Before the breakup of Sudan into Sudan and South Sudan, we had probably somewhere in the region of 150 languages and dialects, about 560 different tribes. So there's a lot of diversity there. But this is a diversity that, in a way, rather than becoming, let's say, a blessing or sense of force, a sense of uh, power for the country, it has become a sense, uh, there's a lot of friction at the moment. Uh, and this is where a lot of this is rooted in, even though it might come across on the news as a, a tussle or power struggle between two generals, there's a lot more going underneath. Uh, and a lot of it is related to history, a lot of it which can be quite complex and detailed that you start to feel as if you're going into a mental maze and you're losing your way trying to navigate it. So I can understand that sometimes it's easier to look at that rosy picture of uh, of the educated elite who uh, mix with uh, the international community and organizations who travel abroad, the middle classes, as you can be um, be scratching the surface of what exactly. you're saying. It's a lot more complicated and complex beneath. And that is pretty much what, what's happening now. And because of that complexity, I would say that perhaps lots of observers, lots of commentators, lots of people who've been activists in relation to Sudan were probably more comfortable keeping it that way. But because they neglected um, the other complexities, 
it was allowed to bubble on and to boil through chronicity and become more complicated until it just got to a point where it was no longer sustainable. So if we were to move to uh, more contemporary times, by far and large, am I correct in assuming that um, for the past 30, 40, probably even 50 years, the, the, the military have been quite prominent in public life. Is that correct? Yes. We have had generals one after the other yes. as being presidents of, of Sudan. The, the most recent and the most uh, talked about, obviously, is Omar al-Bashir, um, who was de deposed in, uh, 2019. In, in 2019 in what was... Now, this is where it gets a little bit complicated. Uh, I'm going to call it a military coup. Would I be correct? I would tend to agree with you because, yes, there were popular protests from December 2018 all the way to April 2019 where there was the major sitting outside the headquarters of the army in, in the center of Khartoum. But effectively, what, what really led to the, the overthrow of al-Bashir was an internal military coup because he was uh, the country was taken over by a council of uh, army and security officers. Now, again... The impression that we got was that this military coup had a significant popular backing. There was the streets of Sudan in by far and large, or at least those were the images and the reports that came our way to London, were celebrating the fact that the regime headed by Omar al-Bashir, which was in power for, what, 30 years? Just under 30 years, yeah. Uh, had been, had been uh, you know, kicked out, basically. So... Well, that's why my my hesitation when I call it by far and large or outright a military coup, because there was quite a significant popular backing to this change, was there not? So yes, and again, going back into history, every time we've had a popular revolution, I mean, the Sudanese, we always like to claim that we had the first popular revolutions in the Arab world way before the Arab Spring in October 1964 and in April 1985. But they followed a very similar pattern. Popular protests culminating in the military siding by the people or carrying out some or for enforcing the last bit of change, enforcing out the man in power. And therefore, that would seem to look on the streets that there's popular support of the armed forces. And the armed forces are generally well respected in Sudan by the man on the street because they're still seen as a national institution. Plus, Sudanese society um, is remarkably highly politicized. Um, if you go to any social gathering, it's either politics or football that people are talking right, about. Okay. Um, and therefore, there is a sense of politicization in the military establishment. So they have quite a high... Uh, level of political awareness, very acute, and they're not detached from what goes on in Sudanese society. It's, 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 it's not like the situation, let's say, in Egypt or in no, Syria. I, I think or it's in, very different. Or, it's very right. different. I mean, the, the, the generals you'd find mingling with, uh, with lay people you'd and find parties them in, and in the marketplace, uh, in the malls. Um, in so in a way, in a way, uh, we're not talking about the the, the sort of binary picture uh, of uh, the army uh, versus or, or in parallel, but totally detached from the population. No, I I, I disagree with that kind of uh, classification because even when the army again, quote unquote, took over in 1958 and in 1969. And in 1989, the three times, even though ideologically they seem different, but every time it was actually politicians instigating that change. So that kind of 
reflects at how much politics goes on within the army. And it's very closely related to other political events within the country. So the army is affected by the currents within the country. And they are well known that many army officers have their own political views and beliefs. Perhaps they don't speak about it, but that 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 um, reality is. And, is and if I may, I mean, regarding the uh, the uh, the protests that took place in 2018 and uh, ended in April 2019 with the um, uh, with the um, disposition of the, uh, of the of the regime of Omar al-Bashir, um, why was that? I mean, what was what, what were the grievances held against the regime? That ruled for 30 years again. Yeah. Well, first of all, 30 years is quite a long time. And um, ever since the independence... But there were of, elections, no? There were elections. Um, and though official bodies such as the African Union, the Carter Center, had all kind of signed them off as free and fair, there, there were widespread um, allegations of uh, irregularities and rigging and so on and so forth, and boycotting as well. Uh, but also since the independence of South Sudan in 2011, uh, Sudan uh, entered a spiral of quite deep economic crisis. So when the protests actually started in December, it was directly re related to a hike in the price of bread, about threefold in a number of Sudanese towns. That was the very beginning of it. Now, the heavy-handed approach by the security forces obviously inflamed the situation further. There's a lot of talk and speculation, obviously, that there were insiders within the regime who were tired of the leadership. They wanted a change. They were finding it difficult. There was a 2020 elections coming up. And within the ruling party itself, there were lots of um, calls that enough is enough that al-Bashir, you've had your, well, more than three consecutive terms. Maybe it's time for young blood and somebody else mm -hmm. to change. And uh, that kind of tussling uh, uh, within 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 the inner circles so that also helped build the momentum and lead and lead to the change now, now the reason why i ask this question is because during the latter part of al-bashir's rule he carried out certain measures which i understand came back and right now are parts of the components of the civil war is that correct absolutely and the major measure would be the introduction of the rapid support forces, which are led by General Mohammed Hamdan Dagala, well known as Hamiti. These were forces, light forces, particularly armed with four by four pickups and light artillery and middle range artillery. But they were mainly in the periphery, particularly in the Darfur region. And they've got a very long history. Uh, listeners and followers here in, in, in the Western world will particularly um, recognize the name of the Junjaweed militia. That's where they came from um, in the early part of this, uh, the 21st um, century. Now, th these forces were in Darfur. They were very decisive in fighting some of the Darfurian movements and certainly decimated a lot of their forces. So well, Bashir called them into Khartoum because he was, as I said, this inner dissent within the party. He was worried, perhaps even paranoid, that the army would move against him. So he allowed, he called them into Khartoum to guard the main installations around the general command because he was wary, and he probably was right in the end that a military coup would be carried out. But what happened oh, the was... They, oh, the irony. They, it, absolutely. <laughs> they participated in it. And even though the generals at first kept al-Bashir under house arrest within his residence 
in the general com command of the, the army. They took him to Koba prison, which is the country's oldest um, prison, very famous for keeping political prisoners. And they became, or Hamiti became, a member of the Military Transitional Council, which came to power in April 2019. And obviously he was now effectively occupying strategic areas within the, the capital. He had a strong force, very resourceful, because th these were forces which had um, participated in the uh, uh, war in Yemen. So there was a lot of money in their coffers. And they were now in control of gold mining regions, artisanal gold mining regions in Darfur. This force now, rather than being used as a paramilitia attached to the army, under the command of the army, was now able to sit on the negotiating table to the extent that even within this transitional military council, within 48, 72 hours, Hamiti was saying, these generals need to leave the council, and they did, and there was a change. And this is why his current opponent, General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan, who was the inspector general of the army, rather than being just a member of that council, became the chairman of the council. So we come to April 2019, and it seems to the outsider, like myself and many others, it seems that things are looking up for Sudan because the, the students' protests, the workers' protests um, have culminated in a change of regime. And we have here, I remember there being a number of names, uh, which I personally wasn't, uh, wasn't familiar with <clears throat> at the time, Hemiti, Al-Burhan, and there was a Hamdouk. So those three gentlemen seem to be, okay, they seem to have come together and they were talking about uh, a Sudan that was going to be prosperous, that was going to be uh, open to the world, that was uh, going to get rid of the ills that had shackled the country and the nation down for, uh, for several decades. So things were looking up, but what's, what, what happened? So that's a very good description of what it looked like. It, it was certainly this sense of positivity, this rosy future that, um, and one term or phrase which was used quite a lot, we're going back to the, into the fold of the world after so many years of isolation, coming in from the cold and, and so on. Um, Hamdok, Abdullah Hamdok, he's an economist um, uh, by training and profession, um, but he's pretty much a technocrat. Though it's widely believed in his earlier years, useful as he was probably uh, a member or close to the Sudanese Communist Party, but he's worked his way up within different institutions with, with the African Union and um, in different African economic institutions. Now, the, the irony, again, was a year previous, prior to the fall of Al-Bashir's regime, he was widely tipped to be the country's finance minister. And so his name wasn't totally unknown to the Sudanese um, public because of the huge publicity about him possibly become finance minister, which is interesting. I mean, if you believe in a conspiracy theory, you might think somebody's <laughs> been priming the stage for, for, for this. And um, he certainly was, in a way, a break because a soft-spoken man um, who... Well-educated. Uh, Well-educated, well yeah. Western-minded. Uh, he knew how to talk with the international community. He was uh, received to much acclaim in the UN General Assembly and um, institutions in Washington and so on. But then again, that's very much, if you take a step back, 
very much similar to the picture you mentioned at the oh, beginning. The education about, system and exactly. the educated uh, class. Yet outside of Khartoum, you could see things were boiling because there were many political, major political mistakes made by the main body, which is known as the Freedom and, and Change Coalition. They wanted or they came in with the illusion that we're just going to overturn 30 years of, of tyranny and repression and just with one stroke of the pen, cancel everything out. They, ha- they didn't look at countries develop, societies develop, for better or worse, but there are factors, anthropological, ethnic, socioeconomic uh, factors. None of this was looked at deeply. It was all, co- all the thinking was concentrated within Khatam. And this is why f- the first... Um, signs of danger, let's say, started to become apparent when different parts of the country bloodshed was 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 breaking out. There was civil strife. There were blockades because the peripheries over thirty years. One of the major things that Al Bashir's regime had done was there was widespread deregulation of of power, and um, a federal system was put into into place. Uh, because of the diversity of the country. So you can't imagine overnight going back to a very centralized system, which seems to be the spirit with which things were carried out. That was one thing. The other thing was, whereas al-Bashir was a military officer, he was largely backed up with a political apparatus of a political party. But what had happened after April 2019... Yes. What happened after April 2019 was that the FFC, the Forces of Change, who led the protests... They introduced the army as a political partner, and they and I think they they were largely immature politically. I'm sorry to say, not very experienced. They were largely activists who thought running a country as diverse and complicated as that was as simple as the student unions that they'd been involved with. But it's a much much more difficult um, business. But without go, going into too much detail, boring detail. But these these mistakes obviously culminated in an imperfect alliance. There was quite a lot of mistrust. And then you had the other problems where there were still parts of Sudan where there was remnants of the civil war of Darfur, how to deal with peace arrangements, and you have lots of armed groups. And then that all, again, reflects in the division or distribution of power and wealth. So there was a peace agreement. And that rosy picture I spoke about, Part of it was that now that al-Bashir has gone, we're going to have peace overnight. Uh, we're going to have um, you know, uh, all the resources we need. But it's a lot more complicated than that. And, and, and slowly, slowly, the realities of long years of, of civil strife started to come. Because when, you have, when, you, when they went to Juba for the agreement with the Darfurian groups, that meant there was a certain distribution. That meant the balance of power between the forces of change and the army was changed. And this is where political maneuvering starts to come in and positioning. And that, in the end, effectively culminated in the military coup that Burhan carried out in October 2021. Now, this has all led to where we are here now because the international community, the Troika, which is Norway, the US and the UK, and the Quad Group, which is the US, UK, Saudi Arabia and Emirates, have been trying to get these partners back together. But the trouble has come when they went through the details, and again, as I say, the devil's in the details. One of the details was the merging 
because obviously you have a national army, you can't have all these militias in peacetime. So integrating them back into the national army. This was the straw that broke the, the mule or the donkey's back. But we always look at the straw. But what I was trying to paint there was that there was a huge load already there. It just needed that straw. And the straw was the issue of integration of these armies. The Sudanese army said this is basically a technical issue. Two years should be enough. The uh, rapid support forces were opting for 10, up to 14 years. And they had some Why? political What support. was their drive? What was their motivation? Why were they insisting on... Well, to be honest, I think it was a ploy. I mean, because I don't think that even proposing 10 years, I don't think that that was even serious. It was just to delay matters and put them on the back burner. Um, I think that there was a, a, a real um, objective not to merge with the, with the armed forces. I might be wrong. But what, what, was, their, um, what was their reasoning for refusing the two-year solution and going for a, a, a far longer one? So there's always been this kind of um, scarecrow which has been put up to scare people that any rapid transition followed by elections will mean the National Congress and the Islamists are going to come back because they're the most well-organized, they're the most resourceful, and they're still present and they have a deep state within the country. So the forces of change have always been pushing that we need to uproot the remnants of the old regime, and we need to um, cleanse the civil service, the diplomatic service, and the military where they have a strong presence, and and get the, and uproot them out. But what they hadn't realized again, thirty years, yes, okay, it might have been the Islamists who started those thirty years, but over the thirty years, they did not rule on their own. They had wide-ranging alliances, even including forces who later on became part of the FFC. And, and wider um, relations with Sudanese society, with the tribal structure, with traditional In groups. fact, if anything, as you earlier mentioned, it was al-Bashir who introduced the rapid force to public life. I mean, he, he introduced them to Sudan. Yes. yes. And, uh, and Hamidti was seen as a very strong political ally of al-Bashir. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and even within the, the, the days of the popular protest, there was a lot of fear that Hamidti might move against the protesters. In, in favor and in, in support favor of al-Bashir. Yes. And when, for example, the tragic events of the 2nd of June uh, 2019, where there was uh, a violent disruption uh, and clearing of the city happened, and possibly 200 plus lives were lost, fingers still point to Hamidi as being responsible for, for, for that massacre. But then again, the popular will to... M put him back, let's say, in where his fear should be, rather than being a political actor, hasn't just not been there. And this again has come come back again now, where it seems some parts of the FFC who believe that the revolution was not complete because it didn't have an armed wing. I mean, we have, obviously, as you know, Sudan's rich with its political um, spectrum, but we still have people who are still held by romantic notions of um, this leftist um, revolution, uh, which has to be an armed revolution, um, as we've seen in other parts of the world. Some of them are quite outspoken. They've been speaking out. The revolution didn't have any teeth. We didn't have an armed wing. And some of them were actually, such as Yasser Arman, who's, 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 a, who's uh, interestingly, people now 
think of him as somebody who's quite bad luck because every political movement he's joined has ended up in disarray. <laughs> dear, dear. But he was getting close to the, the Hamiti clan and family, and he was actually making gestures that the RSF could be the nucleus for the new national army. Now, when you're an army officer listening to all of this, this is not going to go down very well. And if you add that to the fact that you're asking for 10 years to integrate into the national army, the question comes up, why Why so long? Unless you are now becoming a tool which is useful for other political actors. So this whole introduction of armed groups, the officers, into mainstream political life is is basically the, the main root of this, whereas the political forces could have nudged them out. They've introduced them and they've now used them as leverage uh, to to settle out their their competition with their political opponents. Now the way you're you're describing this reminds me, and I hail from Iraq, reminds me very much of what we we've we've had for the past uh, you know twenty years since the occupation of Iraq, and that is the presence of militias, ideological militias, sectarian militias, political militias, but militias nonetheless. Um, and these militias are either doggedly ideological or sectarian, or guns for hire. And, um, you know, I, I we go even before then and we look at Lebanon and the fact that Lebanon has for the past probably 60, 70 years, one could argue 60 years, um, hasn't really had a proper state simply because of the presence of, you know, guns that aren't regulated by the umbrella of an armed forces that uh, no one outside is, is uh, you know, has the right to, to, to carry. So are we also, I mean, we, we call them the rapid forces, but in a way, am I correct when I describe them as sort of a militia or as even a semi-militia? Yeah, I, I agree. It is a militia. Uh, it's a militia, the leadership of which is based in a family. I mean, the, the, the commander-in-chief uh, is Mohammed Hamdan Dagalu. His deputy is his brother, Abdurrahim Dagalu. His cousin is the head of the um, intelligence department of the militia. It largely hails from um, his um, clansmen from a certain um, uh, group of the, the Zegat tribe, um, not all of the Zegat tribe, and a lot of his soldiers come from the wider... Sub-Saharan belt, which uh, extends through Darfur, Chad, uh, Niger, and and Mali, uh, because that's where these um, ethnically Arab nomadic tribes hail from, and that again is a reflection of the chronicity of the struggles in the area. These were struggles where tribes, the nomadic tribes, being nomadic and Bedouin, would move with their animals, depending on dry or rainy season, looking for pasture and water. But that was what led them to clashes which were with, quote-unquote, the African pastoralist tribes. But because these things were left to fester for so long, gradually, and with the other issues of famine and drought and climate change in sub-Saharan Africa, with regime and political strife in Chad and Libya over the years, it became more weaponized. So that is the background of this militia. And therefore, again... The future of this militia is a question. They do not have a political program. They do not have an economic ideology. They do not have a religion, say, faith system or sect system. That they're, they're still even, they don't have 
total unanimous support of even the Zegat. The Zegat, for instance, in the last few weeks have distanced themselves from Hamiti. So they are largely a very glorified mercenary force. And you can see this in the type of company that Hamiti's kept. He's been fighting in Libya with General Haftar. He um, has been fighting in Yemen. And only just a few months back, he was fighting in Central African Republic and widely alleged that he was fighting side to side with the Russian Wagner mercenaries. He exports gold outside Sudanese channels and... um, it's been widely recognized. It's no longer just a simple allegation that this gold... And we're gold, talking about tons and tons. Of... Talk about 26 tons at least of gold annually. Uh, and this has gone... Imagine all of this could have been for the Sudanese people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I have two questions in mind that I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to uh, decide which to ask first. But let me ask about how did this round of the civil war, how did it start? Why did it start? So... There was a political framework agreement, which was largely brokered by the UN um, mission, which is known as UNITAMS, um, and the Troika group and the the Quad group. Now, therein again lies the issue. They were trying to get these different opponents, what was known as the military component, which was the RSF and the army, and the civilian component, which is the forces for change, back together again following the coup which al-Burhan had carried out against them in October 2021. And that, I think, is where the problem is again, because this insistence that Sudan is only these two components is a deeply flawed one. And the insistence in still excluding other actors, either the Islamists with their diverse groups and, and parties and groupings, but also other national actors who had been working with the previous regime or had not been, let's say, uh, didn't have too much animosity towards the previous and had reached the power-sharing deals and so on. This insistence to bridge them together again, I think, is is largely to blame. This is a flawed approach, which should have been rethought again. It's a lazy um, approach. And certainly, I think there's been a, a lot of disquiet in lots of Western circles, so not very offset things should have been rethought properly. But that voice is still bit more murmurs and, and mumblings here and there. And then, as I said, when they wanted to bring this political framework, there was a framework agreement signed in December last year, and then a number of workshops on how to proceed. And it was the sticking point, certainly, or the flashpoint, was, again, the reform of the army and the question of integration of the RSF into the army. That was the flashpoint which 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 blew things apart. And since then, now it's been nigh on ten days, twelve days, um, and we're seeing the uh, the the scale of uh, of destruction and of damage, not only to buildings and installations, but uh, to people's lives. Uh, and in the whole, you know, we can talk about politics, we can talk about you know, all of this, but but ultimately speaking, it's the ordinary Sudanese on the streets of whether it be the capital Khartoum or in, in the ver- various uh, provinces that, uh, that are suffering immensely as a result. So if I was, let me ask the second question that I was struggling with whether and how to ask. But... My interest is, as you're describing the rapid forces, I'm asking myself, where do they get their weaponry, their military support, their ammunition, their logistical um, support and the such? Where do they get that from? 
So initially, because they were militia formed under the guidance of the army, that would have been there. But ever since their participation in Yemen, um, I think it's widely recognized that they've um, received a lot of modern weaponry, transport um, uh, vehicles and, and machines, and certainly a very advanced communication system. Now, nearly pretty much all commentators and people interested in Sudan point are pointing their fingers towards pretty much the United Arab Emirates, uh, partly because of the Emirates role in Yemen uh, and partly because of the closeness of um, the Hamiti um, uh, family to, 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 to the uh, UAE. Um, there have been allegations that even b- before these last events that um, Hamiti was actually in the UAE for at least two to three weeks. And um, the... Um, the other thing is, was there was um, widespread talk, which I recall um, hearing back in 2019, that when al-Bashir regime fell, um, there were suggestions being made by the UAE that perhaps the Sudanese army should be disbanded, something similar to what happened in, in Iraq, for instance, and that a new national army should be formed based on the RSF. Obviously, this was part of the whole the Islamists are controlling the Sudanese army. Uh, it can't be reformed, let's totally disband it. And uh, some commentators and, and observers observed at the time that there was pushback against this from Egypt because the Egyptians were worried that um, any uh, tampering with the Sudanese army would lead to a collapse of the Sudanese army, would lead to potential collapse of the Sudanese state. And that obviously is a huge threat to Egyptian national security, and also because of other regional politics, particularly in relation to Ethiopia and the Renaissance Dam and the Nile Waters Agreement and the balance of power there, because a total weakening of Sudan would tilt in the favor of Ethiopia and the Egyptians. That to them is an existential um, threat. What's about the region, the, the, the closer? I mean, where would uh, Ethiopia, for instance, where would it stand in this particular argument? And also Sudan's neighbors, Uganda, Chad, and such, where would they be standing in all of this? So the Ethiopians, and, and specifically Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, it's widely thought that he is more sympathetic towards the RSF in the sense that the RSF, because of the Egyptian because, dichotomy? Exactly, right. because it will probably weaken or keep the Sudanese army in check and because of other also border issues. Even though the international border between Sudan and Ethiopia has always been accepted and agreed upon, there's an, a vast area of fertile land called Al-Fashaga, um, straight on the border, where for many years there have been clashes between armed Ethiopian gangs who come down from the highlands because Ethiopia has restricted arable land that they can cultivate because of its mountainous terrain. So a weakened Sudanese army is welcome within uh, the in the eyes of the Ethiopian um, government and also because of the balance with Egypt and certainly because of the strategic ties between the Egyptian and Sudanese army. And again, Egypt is keen on a, on a stable Sudan because it also gives a vantage point for Egypt. And this is why we saw Egyptian officers and soldiers in the Meloe Air Base. Day one. Because they've been based there. They've had joint training maneuvers and exercises with the Sudanese army over the last perhaps 10 years or so. Chad would be very, very worried about what's going on in Sudan. Because as I said before, the RSF 
It many of its soldiers hail from Chad and from Niger and Mali. And Chad borders Sudan from the Darfur. From the Darfur on the west, yes. Where the the Arab uh, nomads and the such they constitute a, a threat. A threat, and because there's a delicate balance again between the Zarawa, who where Pre- President Debi hails from, and other Arab tribes and the Quran, uh, and that's always been. A, um, a, there's always been that delicate power balance. So if Hemeti was to get too powerful in, in Sudan or Khartoum, he would form a threat in, in Chad. And likewise, the Darfur um, groups, especially the uh, Zarawa-based groups, they would be a threat to Chad. So Chad's been very, very uh, worried, and certainly there are reports that it's uh, sealed off its border. And there was a report two days ago that the Chad um, Military Council, which rules the country, has actually come out in support of the Sudanese army. The other region which is go- or country worried is going to be Libya. Again, the the Libyan south is a vast area through the, the Sahara. It's very difficult to police. You've got Haftar there. He has an alliance with, with um, Hemeti. And interestingly, just before the breakout of these hostilities, Haftar's son was, was in Libya, was in Khartoum, and, uh, because he was um, given this honorary post of chairman of one of the two major Sudanese football teams. But it seems it, this was all just kind of a cover for a few meetings between some officers from Haftar's group and, and from Hemeti's um, uh, militia. Is it safe to assume that... Uh... The rapid forces also received um, weapons from uh, Haftar and. From- I've certainly heard that there have been uh, movements seen at the um, southern Libyan airport of Al Kufra, where there is a major base. Um, there's been mention of um, convoys of of transport vehicles coming across the the desert from from Libya as well. Okay, t- t- map the scene right now. Where are we? Where, what's happening? Because I understand that over the, the course of the past few days, the army has been relentless in targeting um, the rapid forces bases um, and to more or less restrict the battle zone now to the capital, which is devastating in itself, but still. Um, but, but give us a, a very quick mapping of, of where we are from, from, from the battle zone uh, perspective. So if we go back to day one, which I think was Saturday, I think it was it was it the um, can't remember the exact date, but anyway, the first day of the fighting, um, the RSF seemed to be in control of pretty much the whole of the capital and a number of military bases around the country. But remember, this is where we said they were already there, and it seems that the army was taken by surprise. And I w- I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out when history is written down that it was the RSF who fired the first shot, um, and but. Outside Khartoum, the battle has pretty be much been decisively won by the Sudanese army. Um, certainly in eastern Sudan, in central Sudan, there remain a few areas um, in western Sudan, in Darfur, where there's still contested areas. The battle is largely pretty much now in Khartoum, and within Khartoum, pretty much central Khartoum, around the Republican Palace, uh, around the general command of the army, and the neighborhood around there. And a few, and uh, one particular base for the RSF, which is in Khartoum North, the Sudanese capital Khartoum is made up actually of three cities. Uh, there's what's known as the national capital, the historic part Umdurman, um, where lots of our listeners might have heard of the Mahdi of the uh, 19th century. That's where his tomb is, and he started that. Camp. That has been largely a quiet region, though. 
parts, peripheries of that have had some fighting, but the major fighting is within the more modern political kind of capital of, of Khartoum itself, uh, Khartoum proper. Uh, the airport, Khartoum Airport, was still contested between both sides. Now, the Sudanese army has the relative advantage of its air force. But the trouble for them has been that the RSF forces, remember, rapid um, support, that name came because they're all on 4 by 4 pickups, very light on the ground. They've been dispersed within the neighborhoods. So air force is a bit challenging uh, to, because we all know about the reality of precision strikes and and the term of collateral damage and what that means in human uh, in uh, human cost, but the air force has been taking out their their supply lines, and I would think I mean I'm not a military expert, but judging by what what's uh, playing out, it looks like they've been cutting off the supply lines and trying to squeeze supplies, food, and fuel. And yesterday there was a report on Sudanese TV about that. Uh, abandoned vehicles for the RSF were found because they were just empty of fuel. And uh, certainly there have been reports that some of them have been, because the it seems that the army has been successful in taking out the communication and command structure that the RSF had. Therefore, some of their soldiers have been giving up their clothes and, and just dispersing. But perhaps the core is still within um the the um, near the army headquarters and definitely the Republican Palace where that fight is still going on. And uh, in regards with uh, the numbers of uh, of uh, victims, I mean, every time you listen to a news bulletin, the the, the numbers are rising, and uh, there seems to be a mass evacuation of Khartoum, people leaving their homes, um, heading towards either their relatives' um, um, residences outside of the city and the such. Um, and the images that came back, I, I, I watched them before I came, came into the studio, and they were very eerie. They showed uh, streets that were totally deserted in the middle of the day, um, s- almost no human movement, at least no civil human movement. Um, and uh, obviously, with that, uh, the, uh, the an, uh, you know a fourth round of ceasefires, which has uh, basically had the foreigners evacuated. evacuated. Now, obviously, when you know I know from Iraq, and we followed so many wars, um, attacks, invasions, and the such in in this particular region over the course of the past twenty thirty years. Once, uh, you know, when you talk about foreigners, uh, foreigners being evacuated, you're talking essentially about Westerners, aren't you? I mean, you're not talking about, you know, the odd, uh, I don't know, Romani family, for instance, or the, the Jordanian businessman or the such. You're talking about foreigners who are the Americans, the Europeans and the such. And, and rightly so, you know, they need to be evacuated. But, but just so that we frame things correctly, um, uh, that uh, there are many, many, innocent and uh, bystanding people, whether they be Sudanese or non-Sudanese, who are still in harm's way. Absolutely. I mean, and that's a heartbreaking um, aspect of all of this. I mean, the numbers are probably underestimates. We probably won't know the full toll of this for some time, but um, even these numbers are are terrible. I mean, over 400 people killed. The majority are going to be civilians, a lot of them shrapnel, um, stray bullets, um, artillery shells, 
I've had members of my um, very extended family, you know, our extended families are very extended very, families. Very, extended families, yes. Who've died from shells landing in, in their courtyards while they've been sheltering. They've got nothing to do with the, with the actual fighting. And the number of injured is huge. And then the other toll is that, unfortunately, um, I mean, ye- yesterday, just yesterday, um, uh, an artillery shell landed in a medical center, which is managed by two of my ex-classmates. Um so the medical professionals are unable to get to hospitals, supplies in hospitals. And remember, Sudan was already an under-resourced country. It already had its health challenges. Everything was already limited. Pretty much maybe over 50%, 60 70% of the hospital's capacity has been obliterated by the fighting because you you need the health professionals to go to the hospitals. They need to have the supplies. They need to be safe. That's not necessarily there. And this is, again, the trouble. If A lot is said about you know all these international conventions and humanitarian law. But when you think you've got a militia and an army, what adherence are you going to have? And then that brings you again to the question of the people who've been evacuated. One common theme I've heard speaking to Sudanese friends and family, there's this immense fear that, and they've been very specific in saying, once the Western civilians are evacuated, it's, we're going to be left to our own It's needs. going to be open season. And even the evacuation itself has left a lot to be desired. Um, if you look at, for example, tweets coming out from the Sudanese Junior Doctors Association in the UK, we know at least of 75 NHS doctors who are stranded in the country. Some of them have not been able to be evacuated because... Uh, some of them are not necessarily British citizens or British nationals. It has been said that if you have a stay permit or BRP, you, sh- you should be allowed. But today I was just reading and it was shocking to read that um, one of these do- doctors actually said I wasn't allowed to go. And then there's a heartbreaking bit where, and certainly my own immediate family is affected, um, when you define that British citizens will be evacuated with their dependents, Dependence doesn't include your elderly pa- parents. Now, imagine the situation that you have to make that decision, leaving your elderly pa- parents behind. It's it's awful. The air the airfield being used as well. It's all well and good when it comes out on the news that this airfield's being used uh, to evacuate. It's thirty kilometers north of Khartoum. You have to arrive there with your own means. Now, traversing Khartoum is a very complicated business. Forget the checkpoints and everything else. And this is why lots of people said, well, if I can get to the airfield, I might as well just go to another town in Sudan. It might be easier. So it's it's been, I think it's been quite disappointing, to put it, to put it mildly. Um, and certainly the business about dependents and elderly uh, parents being left behind or elderly dependents, that, that is heartbreaking. Uh, and when you look at the more rapid response of other European countries, um, it has created a lot of disillusionment, I would say, amongst the British Sudanese um, community, particularly the doctors, because they've been very vocal about this. What what's is what's is uh, the the world's position been on on this Hamiti Burhan conflict? Because essentially, I mean, let's it's I mean, what what you're describing is heartbreaking. What you're describing, and I'm, I'm remembering what we just spoke about just a few minutes ago, about how rosy the picture was drawn and painted in only three years ago, you know, or four years ago, 
um, upon the removal of the, of the former regime and how people were thinking of a future so bright and so beautiful. And yet here we are today talking about, you know, hundreds killed and uh, countless injured and people deciding whether to leave their elderly parents and to flee for their own safety with their children or whether to stay behind. It's just absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking. But where where what where where does where does the United States stand on this? Where does Britain where does the government of Britain stand on this? Well, when you look at their general statements, I mean, to me, it it hasn't really gone very much beyond traditional yeah, uh, cla- the cliched I mean, cliches. Statements. I mean, calling for calm. Exactly. And- you you you'd be tempted to think it's a copy and paste from a document or or statement about another country which was which was in strife and uh, and 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 therefore. My my hunch, my personal feeling, my gut feeling, which I can't get rid of, is that it's going to be, let's see who prevails in this, and then we will deal with the de facto government or administration who prevails and take it from there. Any chance of there being some sort of conciliation? I think it's very difficult to see, because if you look at the statements coming out from the warring parties, um, they pretty much paint a zero sum formula. Yeah. And to be honest, zero sum wars is is what militias do. Uh, burning your bridges. I mean, by by bombing the capital. By uh, bomb- I mean, how on earth could you rehabilitate someone who uh, has contributed towards the death and destruction of the country? So, um, and it's scary. And uh, you 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 put it rightly, I, I believe, by evacuating the foreigners. It's now for them to settle. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's quite desperate. But um, I'm I'm gonna try to find some hope um, out of all of this um, and say that what I started with, um, what I opened with in regards with the Sudanese people, um, I I continue to cling on to that. In terms of capacity for, you know, drive and energy and motivation and uh, and uh, the, the 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 sweetness of, of you know of the character of the ethos of the, of the Sudanese, um, I'm I'm still very very hopeful and praying continuously that that will that will prevail somehow. Um, it's uh, it's quite distressing when you describe what is essentially a civil war zone and you talk about those with stakes all being outside of the country none of them being inside of sudan none of them happen to be the you know the 99.9% of the sudanese people absolutely they are all outside of sudan who are benefiting one way or another from from this conflict but you know, maybe soon, maybe soon, inshallah, maybe inshallah. soon we'll come back to talk about well, something. Well, as our saying goes, if I crudely translate it, that the the blessing uh, or the grace of dawn is only seen after the darkest of the night. Very, very true. Very, and very true. hopefully we see that dawn. And if there's one thing to go back with, I think that sweetness that you speak of, that beauty, for it to come out, we can't use the same lights or reflections of the past. And therefore, we need a new path out. Bringing these kind of patchy deals with those partners, I think, is a no has no future. We need to rethink 
where we're going to approach things once the hostilities stop. And from our own national Sudanese priorities and determination, not what our neighbors or regional powers might wish to see. Couldn't agree more. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.